clubhouse. What did I tell you in Fort Worth? I said if it is not absolutely necessary, it does not make the trip. It is necessary. He's a musician. No, he's not a musician. And you're not a carpenter. And he's not a fucking blacksmith. You are pioneers. And that's all you are until you get there. You have no home, no job, no farm. You have the journey. That's it. Welcome to Pod Clubhouse's coverage of 1883, a prequel series to Yellowstone. I'm Caroline. And I'm Mike. Tonight we're discussing episode four of 1883, The Crossing. Tonight's episode was written once again by Taylor Sheridan and once again directed by Christina Alexandra Voros, who also directed last week's episode, River. We have a whole theme going. This woman likes water. These are the water episodes. (laughs) Or maybe she doesn't. Or maybe she doesn't. Maybe (laughs) she had a very traumatic river crossing when she was younger and she's just working it out. I don't know. <laughs> a few days before the series premiere, we were given the chance to participate in virtual roundtable press interviews with the core cast members. Stay tuned to the end of our discussion tonight because we'll be playing our roundtable interview with LaMonica Garrett. It's our final one. Thomas. Our final one of four. So I hope you guys have enjoyed those. Once this episode is published, I'll probably go back and put up just the interviews on on YouTube too. So if for some reason you didn't want to listen to our deep dive discussion, you can uh, in a few days be able to go to YouTube and just watch the interviews portion. Just another community note, uh, we'd like to make sure you know that we have a Facebook group called the Yellowstone 1883 and 46's Discussion and News Group. It's the place where you could discuss 1883 and the whole universe of Yellowstone shows. So definitely go check us out on Facebook and, uh, you know, click become a member and have a great freewheeling discussion. We have episode threads, so there are not general spoilers just popping into the main thread. All posts are approved, so you don't have to worry about being spoiled if you don't want to be so uh yeah come check us out we got a lot of admins looking over posts and making sure everyone's behaving and having a good time so. we're like the shay and thomas of, <laughs> of the, spoilers the group so you guys we assume you've watched this episode so there are going to be spoilers in this podcast we're not going to go step by step and recap the episode but we're going to discuss like the big main points and themes and you know what we think is going to be happening next just like James, we are, the rules are good for thee, but not for me. Mm. So uh, let's I get. I feel that way all the time. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to keep harping on episode themes, but once again, leadership was the fore, was not, I don't know the forefront, but it was definitely a major theme of tonight's episode. What did you think of this discussion at the meeting? One, well, there's two separate questions here. One is James's reaction to being called a farmer and how he kind of flips out on uh, on Shay about that. But then also, you know, Wade sensing that vibe gets a little lippy also, and and Shay says to Thomas, you know, this this back talk is getting contagious. Uh, what, what? Let's start there. Is this something that Shay and Thomas need to stamp out right away? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, I wish that they would have been able to get their re- the respect of the people, you know, quicker than this. But yeah, they have to because this is just going to get crazier and crazier. There's too many dangerous circumstances around them. They have a huge herd of Longhorn. They have, you know, am, you know, ammunition guns. They've got marauders that could come along. All these different things that they have to be paying attention to. The last thing they can deal with is just like infighting amongst each other, you know, not really knowing what we're doing. That is like not the place to waste your energy. You know, I'd be like, not today. I'm not the one. Stop. Here's the counter argument to that, though. A lot of the decisions, maybe not a lot, maybe a lot is is too much to say, but several of the decisions that Thomas and Shay are making or Shay is making deserve to be questioned. And I don't know that at least it's worth a discussion, maybe, the stuff that's being brought up. I think the point James makes up about the river is already high. You know, at some point you have to shit or get off the pot. And the point that Wade brings up about food management, these don't seem off-base discussion points. And if these guys are going to be in charge of some aspects of this migration, then these seem to be like the kinds of things that they should be making better calls about. I mean, if we just listen to Shay without questioning it, we'd be going east back towards, you know, uh, to the ferry uh, right now, you know, and losing all sorts of time. So is this group right to be questioning these guys? I know no one likes to be questioned and Thomas (laughs) wants to go beat James and, you know, make a point that (laughs) sticks. But also, should they be questioned? I, I, I don't know. This was the thing that we talked about last week about good leaders don't just make decisions in a vacuum. That's not how good leaders do it. You have people who are trusted advisors. You you do accept input. It doesn't mean that you're weaker because you have conversations with other people of experience. I think that that's like a huge weakness in Shay. Maybe Thomas too, where they feel like somehow James has nothing to offer or Wade has nothing to offer. Joseph has nothing to offer to the conversation. I think that that is really foolish and something that they can't really afford to act like right now. I'm not saying let them make the decision for the group, but when they have a concern, I think it's not out of control to say like, you know what, Wade, we will discuss that amongst us and and we will absolutely get back to you on that. That's like the adult way to lead, you know, just sort of like, shut up. You don't know what you're talking about. Get out of here. We'll beat you if you say anything. What? (laughs) Right. Who wants to listen to that person? Well, I mean, yes, I agree. I'll give Wade a lot of credit. Wade earned a lot of respect for me in this episode. I thought he handled himself really well. And from a character who hasn't had very much to say amongst the core cast members, he's, you know, one of the regular cast members. He hasn't had a lot to say, but I feel like this episode, really, he stepped forward and asserted himself in not only this meeting and raising this point, which I think he did mostly respectfully until he uses Captain like 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 an insult but again he's just aping what he's hearing from james right james is sending a signal to the group that this old man doesn't need to be respected that being said up until that point i think he presented his argument for slaughtering some beef in a mostly respectful way or at least in a constructive criticism kind of way you know he says you know if it was my two cents you know acknowledging i don't actually have a decision here i'm just a hired hand but Mm -hmm. This is how I would do it. I agree with you that Wade messed up 
by saying captain. And I, and I don't even know if it was 100% that he was taking his cue from James as much as I think it's really difficult when you have a very understandable, clear concern and the person just ignores you completely. I, I think that you tend to want to be like, all right, Mr. In Charge, you know, right, like that's kind of right. anybody's response to that, regardless if, if James was even sitting there. I still think there's a fair shot. You would have had that kind of response. Wade and, you know, and NSR are, are cowboys, you know, at the end of the day, they're not going to come at him like military men. They're not going to come at him like, you know, high society men. They would expect some amount of conversation. Right. And they're capable and they know that they're capable. And I think one thing that comes actually through this episode and since they have signed on is the tasks that they are either given or say that they will handle more than anyone, they handle professionally, they get their shit done, and their stuff is, their boxes are checked. Mm -hmm. So they know that, right? Wade and Ennis, more than anyone in this group, Shay and Thomas included, know what they're doing. They know how to move these hurts. They are proving it left and right. There's a great comment we'll, we'll probably talk about a little bit later when they get to the abandoned, uh, when Wade, Ennis, and Elsa take the herd because they're coming up behind the immigrants and they see all of the abandoned possessions. And I think it's Ennis says, about time they, they, they lightened up. <laughs> and then, you know, Wade says, wait till you get to Kansas. It's like a junkyard there. People just don't realize. They think he has a great line. He says something along the lines of people must think that the road west was paid you know right. which is definitely 2021 looking all the way into the back he's speaking for like the audience there but these guys aren't phased they are cowboys they, this is their realm they are not tennesseans come across the country they are not pinkerton war vets doing this this ride with these people and maybe not being the most prepared for it these guys are in their element doing their thing i'm inclined to listen when wade or ennis are giving especially wade wade speaks with more authority and this is kind of like the little <laughs> brother you know oh, okay, a little bit yeah. uh yeah. but like wait wade speaks like i'm listening to what he has to say well, and here's the thing, the fact that he's been to Kansas and he knows that people have, have been like dumping off their possessions and stuff like that, that alone, knowing that these people are all carrying this stuff and knowing what they know about what's going to happen when they get to Kansas, if you were Wade and Ennis, wouldn't you be like, well, when do you think they're going to figure this one out? Like for Shay right. and Thomas, you know, like at what point are they going to tell these people this is not acceptable? And that was a huge sticking point for me in this episode of... I cannot believe Shay and Thomas did not even glance in the back of these people's wagons. There's not 500 wagons, okay? There's 30. We know taken... We know from the Road West special there are 30. Right. <laughs> so you couldn't have taken literally 30 minutes, a minute a wagon, and just pull back the flap and take a quick look just for inventory purposes. Just if something happened and you needed a bunch of rope, do you have it amongst this group or not? And, like, forget about this whole kind of, like, attitude of like, well, y'all should have been prepared. It's not really about that for me. It's more like I would double check to just know what we had on hand, knowing we might have to do something very, you know, like scrappy, very MacGyvery. I'd like to just know what supplies we're working with. Maybe that's just how I would handle it. And it's like, if I ran a wagon train, right. here's what I would do. But I just don't get it. Even from a military standpoint, you don't glance in the back of, of the guy's wagons when you're going to head out on some sort of battle. Like, you don't do anything. Yeah, I think you've hit upon the issue. Okay. When these guys were in the military and someone above you, when your captain gave you an order, you goddamn did it. And you didn't need to be checked. 
because you understood the ramifications for not doing it. The chain of command exists in the military. Orders are followed. That's not a question. That's a statement when your officer tells you something. When Captain Shea Brennan says something, you fucking do it. And that's not these German immigrants who don't speak English and are getting all of their information translated and have no idea what they're doing and don't understand and question everything. Even now, four episodes in, in this episode, we're constantly hearing the Germans having no concept of what's happening. That piano is huge that they're taking, that cast iron oven. But that's where I'm rolling my eyes, Mike. Right, but but, but if you're Shay and Brendan, though. A grand piano. (laughs) But they're not looking. They said it. they said it very clearly back in that Pinkerton office that in Fort Worth. Me. Lighten your loads. Only take what you can carry. I know, but you would think you could carry it. You would say, I could fit it in my wagon, then I can carry it. But that's you our, what that's, that's our, what I'm saying? I do, but that's our whole point, though. Shay and Thomas are not qualified to do this. That goes back to a conversation <laughs> that we have been having Agreed. this entire time. I don't know what their experiences are, but it very is clear they are not used to handling this kind of group. Maybe they have taken ex, ex-military people who will listen to them where they think, I have a thing with my son. I don't like repeating myself. When I tell him to do something once and then it's not done, the second time I have to repeat myself, it goes much worse for him i don't like repeating orders or or instructions or things that i tell him to do i feel very much like shay feels the same way it's not even on his radar that these guys are not listening to him or didn't listen to him back and forth which again bro they bro they haven't listened to you at all you told them don't drink the water literally the next episode they're all drinking the water out of the lake okay okay i'm gonna pump the brakes for just a second and say just say this a different point of view for myself i guess because i'm looking at it like these people don't know the land they don't know what they're getting into it's fine and well for shay and thomas to be like these people don't know what's going on okay these people don't know what's going on we all agree so you can't just say don't drink the water you have to say or you will be sick you can't say only carry what you can handle you have to say only carry what you can handle because your wagon will sink in the river again like that's the part where it's like i 100 percent agree you can't do it both ways you can't say these people are ignorant to the ways of the land and then say, well, they should have known everything. Well, I which is it? I 100% agree with you. But again, these are ex-military guys. These are guys who fought in the Civil War. And you know what commanders don't ever have to do in the military? Explain why they have told you to do something. If a private raises his hand and says, sir, I would like you to tell me why I have to carry a light load up, up to Oregon, you'd probably get hit in the head by something. Okay, I understand everything you're saying about that they just expect respect and they expect to be followed. And and that's all fine and well. I'm saying that's their flaw, though. No, no, I'm I'm, I'm agreeing with you. Well, doesn't understand the background of the people around him. I mean, even Thomas, right? Like, there's a bunch of things that are are revealed here in terms of his sort of just, like, bullheadedness about, like, I only see it from my Shay point of view and that's sort of the way it is. Whereas, like, 
I mean, Thomas very kindly and softly managed to kind of explain things about nightmares to him that really was eye-opening of like, Shay, you don't get it. And then even with the immigrants, when they're talking about whipping the dead bodies if you tried to swim, I mean, holy smokes. Let, let's have that. We have that clip. You want to let's listen to the yeah, clip? because go ahead. Because I think Thomas really opens Shay's eyes here. Takes a lot to surprise me, Thomas. These people, they've never been allowed to think for themselves. Now they can hardly think at all. The fact that they ain't headed for Galveston, begging their way onto a boat for home, shocked me. It shocked me, Thomas. But they haven't quit yet. I don't know why them folks want to go home. Home sound like hell. Because it's the hell they know. Most terrifying thing on this planet is the unknown. That's because you ain't never been whipped, Captain. Let someone put a whip to your back. Tell me the unknown is what scares you. These folks ain't never going home. I mean, I love that exchange. It's powerful. The fact that Thomas would have the same kind of empathetic based understanding for these immigrants and Shay is just blown away by all of it. I mean, the look he gives Shay is I don't even know how to respond to that. It's not unlike later when Shay wakes screaming from that violent civil war dream. Mm -hmm. And then Thomas has the great conversation with him. He's like the shit I've seen in my life. I go to sleep to escape my nightmares. My nightmares are waking nightmares. You, You know, you don't even know. We forget that Shay and Thomas for as long as they've been together and have been friends have very different life experiences. I think it's important too to to note that like Shay can be a great leader and not be experienced at understanding exactly, you know, like we've talked about, like exactly what to have told these people. However, I hope what we're seeing now is, you know, the door cracking open to him, accepting the fact that, you know, he doesn't know what these people have been through. And to your military point, these people are not people who didn't follow rules. In fact, there are people who did follow rules that were so stringent that they were willing to sacrifice everything and come here with the idea that they would be able to do things where they weren't having to follow every rule. And that's why I think you have to give some leeway to say these are people with thinking minds and they're tenacious. They are worthy as humans to give them an explanation. Don't expect them to to say how high when you say jump. Give them the respect, the dignity that they have put up with a lot in their lives. So please just say it's it's not it's not even like explaining yourself. It's just let them understand the consequences of what happens without treating them like it's I, I look at them almost like little children because they're so Very blank so. slate. Well, you don't yell at a child for mm-hmm. not knowing the consequences of their actions. You tell them if you do this, this is what's going to happen. Now, if they don't listen, that's a sep- that's a second part. But if you say, you know, if you touch the stove, it's going to burn your hand and your skin is going to peel off and it's going to hurt so bad. Then if they do it, OK, you know, that's something to, to point your finger at. But he's not giving them the benefit of the doubt that they're thinking adults, you know, and I just don't think you can treat them this way. 
you know, it's so complicated, though, because it is thankfully. Right. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's complicated because let's go back to James, too. Right. They, yes. they have this issue here in the camp meeting where Thomas is, all, you know, I'm going to go teach him a lesson that sticks. And Shay <laughs> says, no, we we're going to need him later on. So Shay acknowledges that he has to deal with the back talk from James. And I think if he, if he was being honest, he knows he has to deal with the back talk to the extent there's back talk from Wade and the Cowboys because he knows that he needs them in order to have any chance of getting through this. I give Shay a lot of credit for acknowledging that. He knows what his resources are. There is a great little exchange, though, between James and Shay when... James, once again, you know, the rules for thee and not for me, you know, when he sees uh, Shay in the morning across the river and he kind of very obnoxiously uh, like raises his coffee mug in like salute and yeah. and Shay Shay looks like he wants to throttle him, you oh, know, yeah. <laughs> and and he said, well, you know, we're been waiting to get a little warmer. And he's like, that, that, that what he says he's like, that didn't apply to me. That's right. for them, not for me kind of thing. And then they had this back and forth. I said I'd help. I'll help. You know, if they can't get past this river, then they have no busy. They have no business going on any further. And James, without missing a beat, which how you know it's really what he thinks, says they have no business having gotten this far. James feels very has a lot of ownership feelings about the rights of who is allowed to be doing this and who shouldn't be doing this. And he mm. seems to feel very much so that these German immigrants have earn the right or the stripes to be even on this like he's almost insulted that he has to share this journey with them it seemed and i like shay's response he goes one would argue no one has the right to come on this journey which i thought was interesting because this whole idea of the of the unspoiled west that shay knows is about to become ruined ruined by people just as much like james as the german immigrants as the immigrants that we know they're not just germans so it was a really interesting back and forth and really i think revealed both men and what they think of this journey in a lot of ways i was taken aback by james's kind of ownership feeling i was i was actually put a little off by that response of that as if the immigrants don't have the right to make the same journey that him and his family are making did you catch that did, am i reading that wrong i don't know maybe i'm reading that wrong or reading into it too much okay so i want to back up a little bit when you said the back talk portion i i would like to reframe that because yes shay and thomas call that back talk back talk is something you reserve for children adults have a counterpoint adults have a differing opinion Backtalk is for somebody who is less than you, littler than you, right? So there's something about even just the way that they're talking about each other. Even I don't, I reject the idea that James can backtalk Shay. What? That, that's not a thing, you know? Maybe John, little John could backtalk Shay, but not James. That's just like the wrong dynamic for me to be like thinking about this. And I understand that that's Shay and Thomas's sort of sticking point. I mean, even the idea that Thomas thinks he should go beat James, I'm kind of like, oh man, do you not think that's going to be like a brutal <laughs> exchange? Like, you're not just going to go beat this guy and then he's going to like go into submission. Like, I right. really feel like there's a misreading of what everyone is capable of. I don't think there's one Dutton in that tent that's going to show no their way. belly. Uh, I mean, we've already seen Elsa beat off a rapist. <laughs> you know, exactly. like exactly. And you know yeah. what? And never talk about it again. 
and never bring it up. And she doesn't hang it on her around her neck. Like one time I got attacked by this man. It is so everyday and so ordinary. It wasn't even discussed again. You know, I mean, that's a lot. So, okay. So having said that, and now we're moving into how we're going to go back and forth now between, between Shay and James. I was really surprised that James chose to go across the river in the middle of the night. I really thought that was a bold move because honestly, if anyone needed any type of assistance, you know, I thought kind of the idea of him going with this group was at least to have Shay and Thomas a little bit. Like there was some amount of benefit to having him not just be by himself because there was no reason to agree to this. You know, there was some numbers game here. I was surprised that he left Elsa with the herd to cross the river. What if something happened to the two of them? And like what John's just like on the other side of the river by himself. Elsa doesn't James. even know. No, John, little John, oh, five little year old John yeah, yeah, is yes, alone on the other side. And Elsa doesn't even know what's going on. You know what I'm saying? Like there was a lot of scattered ideas here that I do think was born completely out of anger towards Shay, which is like a huge bummer that that's how James would handle his decision making. Cause I think he was just pissed and just felt like you want to get back at him a little. I think, it was a little bit pissed but i think it was a little bit i want my family to make sure it gets first dibs because that that crossing after everyone's been through it is gonna be a mess mess. it's gonna be a mess so this way he says i move my family first they get first dibs i'm gonna put my family on my line my wife almost dies she gets pulled from her horse during this crossing which we called uh, which which he says is a possibility at the outset because understanding how people panic you know, he's made very clear, as as Shay acknowledged last week, you know, I'm not on your payroll. Uh, I'm here because I found some mutual benefit. And so I said I would help and extend I help. And you know what? They did help. I mean, right. you can't deny Margaret and James, especially Margaret, was in there in those trenches helping those people cross that river as much as Thomas was. And Thomas was, I mean, he was earning like swimming degrees. Yeah. No, that was amazing. This is, I think, the first time that we've really seen James interact with the immigrants, James's family, interact with the immigrants in a helping way, right? They've been responsible for the herd and moving that, but interacting with these people, I think this is the first time that we've really seen him pitch, have his family pitch in to help. I don't think we've gotten to that part of the trip yet where having large numbers is beneficial to the Duttons. We're not even out of Texas yet. Where we haven't, we haven't actually, despite what the immigrants may think, we haven't even hit the remotely difficult parts of this journey yet from James and Margaret's standpoint. Well, from James's standpoint, I think actually Margaret thinks it's pretty, pretty bad actually in this episode, as it turns out. But she does. yeah, I think the benefit is, yeah, not reached, uh, has not come into play yet. I agree with you. And I didn't mean to say like that that was the benefit, that numbers was the benefit. I just said there's something about this that James saw. But there's something there, right? right. There's something there. The, okay. So to, to sort of just like think about that, that conversation though, about moving his family in first dibs, the thing that bugged me was that they left Elsa behind. That's the thing that bothered me was I was well, like, okay, if that was the rationale, well, she's got a job though. He makes very clear in here. I can't treat you like a child when it suits me and an adult when it suits me. I, I wasn't thinking of her even like in that exact way not like she's incapable of being away from me but just more like if this entire group wrecks this riverbed but i left the shit to my kid to have to be crossing in the shit you know what i mean it's not anything about her being incapable i would just want my whole group and if claire was there and whomever else was still there 
I would still want the whole Dutton crew across. Mm. I, I disliked them separating like that. And it made me feel like James hadn't exactly thought it all out. Well, that it was a little more knee jerk and a little bit more spite filled. I don't exactly agree because I think he goes to the field to get her. And I think she convinces him that someone has to stay with the herd and that two just wait and end us by themselves isn't enough, that three is the right number. He says as part of the kissing, catching his daughter kissing Ennis and, you know, swapping dinner, as he says, which made me laugh out loud. You know, and she rides up to him and says, are you angry with me? And he says, I'm not if you like him, because I can't treat you like a kid sometimes and then an adult sometimes, which I think is a very mature point of view for a father to have with their daughter. You could only hope that more fathers were like that with their daughters in real life. He knows that she's right. And so who's going to stay? He needs Margaret to be ferrying people across the river. He knows he needs to be helping people across the river. So someone, a third person, and only Duttons are available, have to stay with the herd. She's proven herself capable. He's acknowledging Mm -hmm. that. So I think it makes sense. Plus, they didn't go anywhere, right? I mean, he saw that herd cross the river the entire time. You know he would have jumped back in the river on his horse should something have gone wrong. I don't think they were that far apart. Remember, he banks his family. As soon as they cross, they bank like first dip spot right on the river, right on the top. So they have a clear view of everything going on. So I don't know how much mortal peril she was actually in. It, it was should something have happened. I don't think it was the kind of thing where he was out so out of reach. It's just not the way I would do it. No, 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 <laughs> you know, I'm not saying it's I'm not saying it's like wrong. I'm just saying for me, I would have wanted my whole group safe across. And, you know, that's the way I would have played it. I think this idea of James keep that keep telling Shay that the rules don't apply to me, that I'm saying you should be applying to everyone else. I feel like that is something because it's like the second or third time we've seen it now and heard it from him. I feel like that has to come to a head at some point in a fisticuffs kind of way. I think Shay, even Shay knowing he needs James around for the same way that James knows he needs the group for later in the trip. I feel like that that clashing of following orders is still going to hit ahead. I don't think this episode even has has finished that ongoing debate between them. But I want to I want to switch to the other leader that we actually focused on for the first time a lot in this episode, Joseph. Man, Joseph is just about the saddest leader I've ever seen in my life. Not only learning about his backstory, about everything is illegal. Uh, you know, they would whip the drowned swimmers before burying their bodies. It, the guys were people were already dead and they would get whipped for being in the river in the first place. That's where they're escaping from. And then having to hold and tell his friends that they can't take their stuff. And then the guy's going to cry. So he hugs him. And then his wife. I mean, we finally I believe his wife is Riza in the tent and promising her that Oregon's going to be a paradise. Why did you promise her that? I feel like that's the karma kiss of death. He did ask Shay first, though. He tried to get confirmation, like, is Oregon worth the risk? You know, is it going to be good? And then went back to his wife and was like, no, no, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. (laughs) You know, I think we described him correctly episodes ago when we said the reluctant leader, that he doesn't want to be the bearer of bad news to these people. And it's it's terrible because a whole lot of this is just misunderstanding, miscommunication, not being educated about how this journey actually works. And it's not I don't I really don't think that this group is trying to be difficult. I don't think that they're trying to break rules. For the most part, they're just unfamiliar with what they're being asked to do. And they they aren't 
um, capable of a lot of the things. I mean, I can't imagine trying to get across the river not being able to swim. I I don't have that fear in me because I do know how to swim. But man, I was just watching this thing about like the ocean the other day and I felt overwhelming panic of just watching how water is so powerful and and so unforgiving that like it actually made me be like, I don't want to go to the ocean, (laughs) which is kind of like crazy. But I mean, these people are they're brave and they are tenacious, but they are not skilled and they are not experienced. It was really great for the show to give us a moment, a quiet, tender moment between Joseph and Risa for them to actually express their worries and express their expectations that they can't wait to start a family and And start working on it that night, baby. What's so worrying about that to me is that as soon as you start revealing, as you know, from my reality show watching, when you start revealing people's motivations, when you start revealing Mm -hmm. like these hopeful thoughts, (laughs) you are bound to be, you know, your head on the chopping block. So it makes me nervous that we put the spotlight on the two of them and had their moment about what they're looking forward to in Oregon because, oh man, couldn't you just hear the music being like, don't, don't, don't. I mean, when Risa, Risa cries out to him or to Shay or just to the world in general, how do we make our lives out of nothing? I mean, I understand that. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, this, uh, the way they must be hearing these words of you have to leave all of your possessions behind. This is one of my favorite clips from the entire series uh, that Shay kind of lashes out because he's just had enough again because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to justify his words. He just wants to say things and have them done. So when he lashes out here, I'm calling it the pioneer clip. And I think it was something that they should have probably been told back in Fort Worth, if not earlier. But at least now they've heard the words. What did I tell you in Fort Worth? I said, if it is not absolutely necessary, it does not make the trip. It is necessary. He's a musician. No, he's not a musician. And you're not a carpenter. And he's not a fucking blacksmith. You are pioneers. And that's all you are until you get there. You have no home, no job, no farm. You have the journey. That's it. That's like saying two plus two equals apples to these people. They they just don't even understand what the actual fuck you are talking about. Weird white must, mustache guy. I don't understand your words. I literally don't understand your words. But even when they get translated for me, I don't understand what you are telling me. I, these guys are so focused <laughs> on being not being beggars in Portland. They're not thinking about the fact that they will be dead within the next 2000 miles trying to get there like right. they they're they're already building their houses in Portland that's not how but this works but don't you think a little part of you has to have that of course. little nugget inside of you right other cuz otherwise how do you keep going like of course but here's the thing you know Shay says to Thomas in that great scene with the whipping and and all that he says you know the unknown there's nothing more terrifying than the unknown but not for these people they're not quitting it, i'm shocked by it and and Thomas makes it clear to Shay what they're escaping is more terrifying than the unknown to them they've only ever known the lives that they've known james may be willing to shed being a farmer easily and and in fact will get in your face if you call him a fucking farmer or a captain he's ready to who to take on a new skin of being a cowboy pioneer but these people don't these people think i was a musician back home and i will be a musician 
carpenter or blacksmith in my new home. No, not necessarily. You were a musician. Now you are going through, you are the beautiful butterfly in the cocoon, and you will emerge, hopefully, alive 2,000 miles from here as something else. Maybe as a musician, but maybe not. That is something that no one has told them and that they don't realize. They just didn't escape the tyranny of their own of their old life. They have left behind every aspect of their of their old life, good and bad. It feels like the type of thing that happens in stages. Like you decide, I can leave my home country, I can make it this far, but I will take these things that are important to me. And, and I do think it takes a while. And it, it's these individual steps of shedding your old life to finally be able to become what you want your new life to be. For me, I'm finding myself to have a lot of compassion for these people. I'm feeling like they're not ignorant. They're not stupid. They're not unskilled. They're not these things. They are inexperienced and they didn't understand because who could understand the magnitude of what they were undertaking, having never done this before, having no one to tell you what this is like and what you're really doing. So, you know, lots of people take those first steps without really realizing what the journey is. And and I think we even hear that with Margaret in this episode quite loudly when she's like, yeah, you told me I was going to be like this, but like, we didn't talk about this, you know, how hard and how difficult this was going to be. Now, this is Margaret Dutton. I don't, I don't equate her with being someone who is ignorant about what was going to be happening, but even she didn't grasp how difficult and how complicated this was really going to be. So I'm giving them a lot of compassion and saying like, this must be excruciating and to see all the things that they had to leave behind. Oh my gosh, when the camera pulled back, my heart was just like, oh, these people, oh my goodness, the things that they thought they should bring and the things that they, they don't have, you know, that you just, oh, I, I just felt it. So this episode for me had a lot of, of like dramatic moments throughout and, and that moment of them realizing I can't be a carpenter. I can, I'm not a musician. I'm not these things that, that it hit, it hit hard for me. They've all left the field because they've moved down to the water area. And so the camera lingers on just the clumps of possessions left in the field, like some bizarre, like alien artifact crop circle. Yeah, it seemed like a disappearance kind of situation. Like, where's the people? Yeah, I mean, it it was honestly truly a shot that could have been pulled out of uh, the leftovers. I I was hard pressed not to think of those abandoned possessions as, as a metaphor for literally them abandoning their old lives by force you know and you're right it is in stages so this is the second stage now they've escaped the tyranny but now they've realized that they have to actually shed every aspect of their old life and didn't some part of you have some amount of admiration that like they made it across the ocean with a piano like these people oh my god how much work it took to get those things to where they were having to dump them was like mind-boggling why do you think james is so sensitive to the farmer comments 
take it a little bit like the word captain. There's nothing wrong with the word captain, but the way that it was spit at Shay was unacceptable. There's nothing wrong with being a farmer, you know, but if you're going to say just a farmer, you're, you're saying something else. You know, you're being derogatory. You're trying to act like you're less than. And, and in that case, I think that's where he bristled. And that's where he's like, you know what? I'm also a captain, a.k.a. just as good as you. And he gives a glance to Thomas, who's still wearing his his Civil oh, War yeah. uniform. Yeah. Yeah. Like, OK, so I don't I, I don't identify with what I was back in Tennessee. I also don't identify as a military person. OK, I don't identify as that. I think this is the road to discovery for him, trying to, you know, be that dreamer, to be who he's meant to be. He's taking the same steps that the immigrants are in terms of wanting to shed what he was. He's doing it much more deliberately, but he doesn't want to be called what he was in the past. You know, if you get to the point of having shed it, like I bet that guy who's the musician, when you get further along the road, if you say, well, you're just a musician, he's going to bristle at that. You know, I think because he might cry he, first, though, a little bit. Well, but you get what I'm saying. Like, if you act as if you haven't shown more skills or more capability of than what you're being called, that you you don't have much more facets to your personality, then, you know, I think that's always going to be a big middle finger to whomever said that to you. Can you help us ferry folks across? I can do that. Means your wife has to drive a wagon. My wife can back a wagon through the doors of a saloon. She'll be fine. We'll cross in the morning. Mm. Wait till it warms up. Let everything get hot and a little tired. Animals will be more ready to get in the river then. That's rain over there. Rain over there is higher river here. It's high already. By the time I get these misfits moving, it'll be midday, farmer. Don't you worry about it. I ain't no fucking farmer. You were. I was a captain, too. I don't call myself that either. Captain. One of the major themes is shedding of your old life, whether you're doing it because you're being forced to, like the musician, like Joseph and Riza and all of the immigrants, or because you are enthusiastically doing so, trying to change your old life because it doesn't make sense for you anymore. You know, I think back to the Road West special that we covered last week, where Tim McGraw talking about his character and Taylor Sheridan talking about the James character, talks about how he was conscripted into the Confederacy. He was forced to, you know, fight and then returned home after being in prison and just didn't understand the world that he was coming back to and didn't agree with it and needed to get away from it. You know, he is enthusiastically running from his old skin, his old life. And I, and I think Shay saying you were, uh, mm-hmm. is is just is just the worst thing you can say to James. <laughs> it's such little kid crap, isn't it? To be like, yeah, well, your mom is. Like, it's right. like that kind of issue. Like, cut it out. But here's the other thing. I also think that James fancies himself a man of, of the world in many ways. And mm-hmm. I know that sounds a little bit foolish because obviously he hasn't been around the literal world, but he doesn't want to be put in a box. He doesn't want to be told you're a farmer or you're a captain. Like, he doesn't want to be categorized. So it is always going 
going to be irritating whenever Shay tries to say, well, you're just this. It's never going to work out. I also want to say that we learned a little nugget in this episode that I was quite surprised and a little nervous that this was shared when Elsa goes and gets Uh herself some pants made, right? Alina, Alina, the Italian pants maker. There's some paisans on this trip. Paisans and paisanas. I was so excited. (laughs) Hilarious. Well, when she actually trades the gold for the the pants, which I kind of thought was like a pretty uneven trade, but Yeah, she didn't do the market evaluation on that one. (laughs) How many charms do you got on that bracelet, Mm, girl? That was a little much. But here's the thing. When she admits that James made jewelry to hide their fortune, I was like, Elsa, girl, I don't know why you are sharing that nugget of information. Like, that feels wrong to have shared. Mm. It also made me take note how much jewelry Elsa was wearing. It was a lot. <laughs> she yeah. had a lot of things on. So I was like, okay, I'm going to start paying and attention to that more carefully. Uh, that bracelet is in the opening credits and is 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 shown in the opening credit montage where it's kind of like the silhouetted black and whitey kind of photos. That bracelet on her arm with all the charms is highlighted. I've always thought it was highlighted. So, yeah, I, I thought that was a really interesting nugget of information that dropped. And I had the same reaction to you. Like, you don't know, Ali. <laughs> the Italian <laughs> pants maker. Oh, well, and, and to continue the James conversation, it also lets us know that James is a jack of all trades. You yep. know, he is also a jewelry maker, yep. you know, and they weren't just this whatever they're trying to act like this really low end farmer. No, he had gold and and he was a smart enough of to create, you know, jewelry out of it to be able to travel with it. Like he's a smart person and we are getting that as an audience now. We can't fault Shay and Thomas for not knowing all the things that James can do, but we're definitely being fed more information. While we're talking about Alina, the Italian pants maker, I have to say I laughed out loud at the whole skinny hips conversation uh, <laughs> and then telling her that she's, her baby's going to have an eggplant head and then Elsa not knowing what an eggplant was. That whole thing made me laugh so hard. I can literally hear my grandmother, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, skinny hips, <laughs> you know. Well, and also fascinating the value system. Right. I think that that highlighted it for me. Elsa said, oh, thank you for the compliment that I'm so thin and and I'm so little. And Alina's like, no, that's not what you want to be when you're out being a pioneer. You want to be of hardy stock. You want to be thicker and bigger and stronger. You don't want to be like a little frail bird. So, girl, like I'm not giving you a compliment. I'm saying your whole job is to procreate and that's not going to do it. So it was fascinating that they just had completely different, and it has to do with the societal lady stuff that in theory, Elsa you know, was discarding and didn't want to be a part of that. But she she loved the compliment that she looked little and skinny. Well, for an episode that was all about changing and, and the cocoon and the, you know, the, the, what becomes a butterfly? Is it a, a worm? What is it? What is it? What becomes a caterpillar? A caterpillar, you know, all for like the caterpillar going <laughs> the into the very, very hungry worm. <laughs> <laughs> the, the caterpillar going into the cocoon and coming out like, you know, a beautiful butterfly and that whole metamorphosis that everyone is, is discussing it to some extent in this episode as they go through this change that the journey is making them. And and the different stages, very much Elsa's journey in this episode. And it kind of bookends, like the show is so good at doing, it bookends the kind of front and back end of the episode. Let's listen to her first clip here, uh, which she has before she goes to meet Alina, the Italian pants maker. Every living thing is armed with thorns and horns and fangs as the land wages war on itself, seeking the answer. 
I knew that war. That war between what you should become and what you could become. I looked at this place and saw my unfinished soul. I looked at this place and knew, for me, that war was over. I know what I am now. I'm a cowboy. It's that realization that prompts her to give up her dress for a more usable horse riding outfit, you know, pants, uh, and and turning her dress into a, a, a sleeveless top. The more, even more interesting thing is, as after that conversation, and she's walking through the beautiful opening scene of the sun just kind of setting, or, or is it rising? It's always impossible to tell. Uh, you know, walking through the wheat fields, she goes through the town and she's talking about how the further west they go, the less old traditions and roles seem to matter and that they are ever changing. We see women chopping wood. We see the bare, uh, bare sleeved woman riding horseback. The rules are all out the window. And it made me harken back to the first episode while they were still in hell, you know, hell's half acre. Uh, and we had gotten this clip from her. This is, this is Elsa in anticipation of this journey. So much. I don't know about life. We learn to read, we learn rules, learn scripture and manners and how to avoid saying or doing things that make others uncomfortable. All those things seem to be the opposite of life. Seem to strangle it. But now, I'm sleeping on the edge of civilization. And soon we leave the edge behind. Then no rules. Then only life. What an adventure. What an adventure for all of us. What an adventure indeed, you know, talk about prophecy and then prophecy being fulfilled. I think to show just being able to kind of call back and pull forward all those kinds of things that they laid in, they laid out for us at the beginning and now we're seeing it and the themes keep coming up again and again and again. I really give the show a lot of credit for some smart writing and some great depictions here. What do you think of that scene, of the opening scene of not only this idea that she's now identifying as a cowboy, right? The self-realization she has, but then seeing how the group is changing that the further west they go, there are no rules anymore. It's just life. <laughs> That seems very up Caroline's alley. <laughs> well, okay. The first thing that I noticed was the the Texas horned lizard that she picked up and had in her hand. And I was like, girl, what you doing? <laughs> it's one of those things where I, one of the themes that has continued in the Taylor Sheridan universe is is looking at different aspects of Texas. The They're actually also known as horny toads. And they are like the TCU mascot. Like It's like a well-known animal. So it was funny when she picked it up, like, look at this crazy looking thing. And it was like, yeah. <laughs> but it is crazy looking. I mean, it looks it like is. a left. It looks like a leftover 
like a dinosaur from the prehistoric age. Yeah, yeah. Sure. no, it totally does. But it's it. I don't know. It felt so familiar to me that I, it it was like making me smile. So I loved that whole portion. The part of her actually transforming physically in and changing her clothes and stuff. I mean, that gets so beautifully bookended by Margaret at the end when when they're like, you know, if you're gonna wear that dress, you're gonna drown in that dress in the river, and she ends up like just having to discard the dress as well. It's fascinating how they're doing a good job of like continuously showing like you can either do this thoughtfully and go trade and get an outfit you like or you're going to be forced to do it but like it or not your old life is is being discarded so i give elsa a lot of credit that she is staying more i guess i want to say um aware more woke to the entire experience while everyone else is still clinging to what they think is the right thing it's age though right i mean she's at that exact right age to embrace all of these things no matter where elsa is located just her age alone would be having her go through some kind of metamorphosis some kind of change whether it would be limited to just being a girl into a woman but now you're adding girl into a woman and and into all these other things. She's primed, the most primed of anyone on the show, to be open to change. And in that way is leading the pact. I was so impressed at the reaction that Margaret gives her. You know, she kind of laughs when she comes riding up and she says, like, I don't want to know how how or what you traded for to <laughs> right. get that. Like, what is all this? <laughs> but she says, not your worst idea. And I took that to mean in mom speak, that's a pretty good idea. Like, that's pretty smart what you did well and that's what i mean like it's like elsa is doing it purposefully like she consciously chose an outfit that worked better for her margaret was forced to be in her underwear because she didn't she didn't make that choice to just be like you know what this isn't gonna work for me i can't keep wearing this old life literally in dress form like it's just not gonna work out for me i i thought that that was wonderful you know to speak to her openness too i think that you know looking at like the pandemic and looking at how kids responded versus how adults responded i mean adults were like stubborn mules trying to get them to understand different things that had to change whereas the kids were like put a mask on okay (laughs) you know like for the most part like kids were so much more malleable and they just like these this is what's happening now all right we're moving forward with this now the adults are the ones you know so set in their ways and again we talked about their age if the average life expectancy is 39 and they're already in their 30s these people are for all intensive purposes in our life like like geriatric in their thinking you know like they have already lived their lives and they expect to do it in a certain way so they're going to be so much harder to change what they're thinking her mind still pliable you know she's still willing to take in new information and adapt what do we think about elsa and ennis in this episode this is the one we get first kisses we get love blooming we get that dorky voice that she uses that's that's so that do it again you know all of that and then then you get ennis being a little bit of like like a well i mean she's like do it again it's it's cute it's very childlike it's It's very adorable yeah well she's trying to be cute what are you gonna do Nothing washes away the world like the kiss of another and then ruminating on kissing the idea of strangers putting their mouths on each other for pleasure. You know, kissing is silly, basically, but also it feels amazing. And that's why we want to keep doing it again. Is this the kind of payoff you were looking for? Are, is this show handling this coming of age romance aspect well in a way that it's not going to alienate, you know, the hard ass cowboys that want, you know, running and gunning? 
I was okay with this one because I didn't I didn't feel like the scene was as cringy as say her looking out the window in in the previous episodes and being like I don't know about sex that bothered me I was like oh cr- cringy cringy but this where it was just like he leaned over and kissed her and then she was like mm, do it again I didn't it didn't bother me it didn't feel like I was watching children it didn't feel like right. I was watching something that like I should be seeing yeah and it was completely fine I was kind of laughing about the whole kissing makes no sense at all very little of the physical interactions that humans really do with each other and if you're looking at it from a logical standpoint it all is kind of arbitrary right holding hands or anything else that why do people you know rub noses stuff like that there's all kinds of things that really just have to do with familiarity and so i was kind of just smiling to myself about like yeah all everything we do is so weird really you know it's all kind of strange i was most struck and i have to tell you like i've had an unfortunate situation of pretty much exactly what was happening there with James where like there was a conversation being had and then I didn't know my father was like steps behind me and the night was so dark and so quiet and all of a sudden I hear my dad say Caroline it's time to go home and I was like <laughs> like die die on the spot <laughs> I felt for Elsa I've been in this situation and definitely when I saw James's shadow there between them I was like oh my god James gave Ennis one rule don't get handsy does it count being handsy if your hands stay on the horse I think snog, <laughs> I think snog and the daughter is handsy I think it's handsy in the metaphorical sense I think so too that was this, within the scope of handsy I was actually right. quite surprised he was so bold I mean were you like whoa he's going for it I feel like the show has put the work in it all felt so good because he even then calls it out he says uh, I'm the one who's being bold now you know <laughs> Your Ennis impression is hilarious. I, I do Ennis. I go high for Ennis. I can go low for uh, for Shay. Uh, you know, but because that was a nice callback from, you know, last week when he's like, you're so forward. You know, like, I think the show has put the work in to build Ennis and Elsa in a believable young love way. So from a dad point of view, I have to know, do you play the same card of I'm not going to say anything, but you're the one who has to tell your mother? I mean, I definitely like the you have to tell your mother part. (laughs) I would like to think I would handle this in the same way that James does and and be level-headed about my child's sexuality and and all of that kind of thing. And it's all natural and you're only going to push the kid away if you freak out. Right. And I get to show a lot of credit because I feel like that is the typical dad trope is. Oh, yeah. He could have shot in the air, man. That's kind of what or I could have shot him. Big like, I mean, the fact that I feel like nine out of 10 shows, all you're going to hear is the cocking of a gun hammer or something. <laughs> but as like a warning shot, I'm not saying any dad should be shooting anybody. But, you know, the actual pointing of a gun or anything. I mean, I, I expected a bigger response out of James. This was a much more kinder, gentler James. than I Very mature. But I mean, but uh, but he again, so this isn't out of this isn't out of thin air. James has had a very mature approach to his daughter's coming of age, more than any dad has ever been depicted in any television or movie ever. Oh, good lord, that's an awfully big statement. A hundred percent. He has had none of the typical dad reservations 
I mean, the biggest reservation he had was at the very outset when he said, I'm not ready for my daughter to be courting, but then immediately and ever since then has been totally fine with her experiencing life and this aspect of being part of life. He hasn't shut the door. Even here, he said, you know, y'all are going to keep swapping dinner, you know, but don't lose sight of your job. Don't lose sight of your job, though. Like, right. Work comes first. That's his only concern here is I give him a lot of credit and maybe it's even un, a little unbelievable that he is so woke and mature about it. I'm, I'm like saying it's walking a line because it because I, I mean, he had just had the handsy conversation like an episode ago. Rules don't mean anything to anyone in this show, though. No one listens to rules. Well, but James <laughs> says rules don't apply to him, but they do apply, apply to everybody else. Yeah, so he fair, fair, mostly fair. expected everybody else to follow the rules. But I think you're right. He gives Elsa a lot of room because he does respect her. And so it's not about respecting Ennis, really. It's about respecting her. And trusting her. And I think and I think she has earned the trust, at least for the portion of the show that we have been with the Duttons and getting to see their life. She hasn't abused it, and she has earned it by putting in the work. She's not complaining about having to go herd cattle and stay up and singing all night. She's not complaining about any of that. She, she has been a good soldier. They have said, do X and she has done X. They have said, do Y and she has done Y. When you have a kid who's that reliable who is 17 seven especially in 17 and in 1883 17 that's an adult and you you could either fight that and make things bad and awkward and push them away and make them resentful or you can embrace that and have an ally every time james treats her like an adult i think he continues to solidify a solid relationship that will go the distance between him and his daughter what do you think that Margaret is going to respond like when this all comes out? <laughs> I mean, she's a little bit more wild card because she has been on the record having ruminations and, and, and feelings of regret, not only about this whole journey, which I want to talk about in a second, but specifically as relates to her daughter about that there are no gentlemen around, that she is going through this coming of age moment with nothing but some cowboys around at most or or some immigrants who don't speak English. She, though, has been pretty cool with her daughter once Claire was out of the way, especially, I feel like she also has treated her daughter with maybe less rope than James has given Elsa. But I feel like she's given her her freedoms. She's letting her tend the herd, right? I mean, it wasn't yep. she also was aware that Elsa was off in the field nearby and not in the tent sleeping. I mean, did you notice like little John was sleeping with them in the tent instead of with Elsa, right? Because right. Elsa was working. She's an adult. She's earning her keep, just like the cowboys. She is a cowboy. I don't know that Elsa and Ennis are even going to be on her radar following this episode. I, I do think she has bigger fish to fry is where I kind of landed on her. I was going to be like, you know what? I don't think that Elsa, you know, catching a little smooch in the field is is nearly as big as all that Margaret's grappling with. Is it a fair criticism for Margaret at this point to question James not being clear on what was involved in this journey, right? Just just to recap their conversation, after she drives the wagon across the river in kind of a chaotic, loud, but very efficiently done, yeah, of, of across the river, she says, cover little John's ears. And she says, you didn't tell me that it was going to be this hard. And he responds, I told you it was going to take everything we had to make this trip. And she says in response... You should have clarified everything. 
I don't know if that's a fair criticism at this point. I feel like uh, James has been pretty above board about what was required. This is similar to the immigrants, though, where it's just like, you know, you you don't know what you don't know. So you think you've asked all the right questions and you think you're prepared for what you're about to do, but you're not. And I mean, I want to remember back with everybody, all of our listeners, remember back to James being the dreamer without a plan. He didn't exactly know what he was getting into. So I'm going to call it a little bullshit in that he's kind of being like, well, you knew we had to do this. And I said this deep down in his heart, if James was like, looking into the mirror, he would have to say, I didn't know how hard this was really going to be. I didn't know what I'd be asking my wife and daughter and son to be doing at this level. This feels death defying a lot of days. And that is more than I thought. And you can see that in things like James, that little moment where we got in a previous episode where they said he kept moving the camp further away from the group. There's something about him that he has his own reservations. He has his own doubts. He's not speaking to them, saying them to Margaret and saying like, you know, this is this is harder than I thought it was going to be. But his actions show me, especially him crossing in the middle of the night. Same. He's trying to mitigate how difficult it's going to be. But even he didn't really embrace how difficult the whole thing was going to be. Her asking him that question made me think of this conversation that Claire has with her back in episode two, which by t- at that time I said the reaction Margaret gives here made me feel like Margaret actually maybe agreed with Claire in a lot of ways and was actually harboring a lot of those same reservations. You know, you and I talked about how she was having to be the not dreamer, right? She was having to be the mm-hmm. one to cross the T's and dot the I's and make the trains run on time Where whereas James and Elsa maybe are in this dreamer state but let's let's revisit that clip and then see if we're seeing some of that doubt come here i don't recall anyone forcing me who the hell do you think you are (sighs) what is so funny honestly claire i don't have the energy or the interest to continue this conversation what do you He's a dreamer, Margaret. Always has been. And they never come true. It's coming true, Claire. No. This is not a dream. This is the nightmare. You'll see. I I feel like her having to take off her dress and, and, and so much credit to Faith Hill. I think Faith really acted her ass off in the back end of this episode. Not only the silent screaming and beating the ground that we see her oh, do yes. after she, you know, pushes off the woman and, and manages to not drown. But when she before all of that, you know, she says uh, this is the rough quote. I don't know if I got it exactly. She says oh my God, we're going to get to know each other better this day. And she delivers it in just like this, like, I can't believe we're happening. You know, this is all happening. But her dress is the same version, I think, of the immigrant's possessions. You know, she's being pulled along into shedding this skin that Claire warned her about when she says this is not this is not the dream margaret and she says it is the dream it's coming true i i it struck me then it struck me now listening to it i feel like that is margaret
Margaret saying that as much to make herself believe it as she was trying to get Claire to believe it. And I think yes. this episode exposed that though she hasn't silenced those doubts in her head. If anything, they're even more present than they were before. I, I think that this episode is, you know, the most dramatic in terms of dealing with death, in terms of dealing with what the struggle looks like. I mean, we are being thrust into the river with the immigrants and and Thomas and everybody trying to desperately survive the situation, trying to drag people out. It it was very visceral for me. It was very just chaotic and crazy. And I mean, I was like holding my breath the whole time. So how do, what do you feel about how they presented the actual river crossing, especially when we have the overlay of Elsa playing the piano? I think it was a genius decision to do. That's Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata that she plays. Uh, that is just under four and a half minutes of no dialogue. Just the piano playing, the creaking of the seat. That's what that cracking sound was. It was. I'm pretty sure it was the seat she's sitting on like creaking. And then just the visual aspect of the chaos. Because the Moonlight Sonata is a very uh, moody, sad, introspective piece. And you have this silent visual of this chaos of the screaming and the drowning and then just the, the splashing and the horses. I think it was really dramatic. I think it was very emotional uh, watching Margaret get pulled from the horse because they had specifically spoken about it and then watching her struggle under the water pushing the woman like pushing the woman off of her pushing her down because she had to because it is a survival thing at that point and then just that head bobbing of the water as she struggles to emerge like the the redhead woman like the the head bobbing in like the river dead as margaret like emerges from the water barely alive herself the girl mouthlessly yelling mama on the one bank they could have done it with the noise and it could have just been frenetic i feel like it hit in a much more emotional way this way because it forced you to watch the lack of dialogue forced you to stare at the screen and take in what was happening to these people like th this is literally their journey this is this is the metamorphosis right the, this is their baptism by fire through this pulsing river it doesn't get more symbolic than that it doesn't get more chaotic and frenetic than that but on the other side, if you survive, you will have been changed by that experience. I think the show presented that so well. I think they also managed to tap into some memories of other, you know, entertainment with, you know, things like having watched Titanic mm. and, and having, you know, the, the band play on, you know, things go silent and you're watching people die. And yet you have this classical music being played over the top of it and right. being able to kind of dip into the audience's feelings of like other things you may have seen, I think also like gives it that extra impact. Uh, but also many war movies do this, you know, when things get like super extra insane a lot of time on the battlefield they they stop playing what's happening on the battlefield and you just hear the score things start going a little slow motion you're getting these like vignettes you're getting this stuff because like you said they want to force your point of view to be like on a specific thing like focus on this exact moment we don't want to give you the epic sweep we want you to feel personal about these individual deaths that are happening we, it, it's got to feel intimate and you do when you get Elsa's tears played over the top of the classical music played over the visual you know that that's really layered 
Isabel may beginning to cry as that piece goes on. And that's the kind of piece of music that does make you cry if you're in the right mood for it. Her crying as that piece goes on, it worked for me on a couple of levels. One, because we're intercutting back and forth of this chaos and death happening at the river's edge that she doesn't even know is happening, but on some level she knows is happening. So not to be Star Warsy about it, but it's like Obi-Wan, you know, a thousand, a million voices crying out in pain kind of thing. Same thing. She knows on some level something horrible is happening and i think that's part of the tears but i think it's also elsa you know this the this leader of shedding your skin is shedding tears because this piano piece when she sits down she says i used to play i don't play anymore that's her shedding that skin this this woman who is the most ready to take on this new adventure of life that they're entering even she has to shed her skin a little bit and shed that old life a bit still and and I, and those tears worked so well on all those different levels her crying while she's playing put together with faith silently grabbing and clawing at the ground when she finally makes it to the bank shore really really impactful just great silent because there's no dialogue it's very hard to emote when you're just doing face acting when there's no dialogue to support you it's all on just your um, your face and how evocative you can be well done job shot really well i felt it i felt like i was there i appreciated i was looking up the the moonlight sonata and i really appreciated this little summary it says it creates a a melancholy mood that sweeps over you before the melody begins in earnest with a murmuring, almost desperate ache. There's this sense of relief, but also anticipation of what will happen next. Ooh, if that doesn't set you up, what happens next is like, oh, it, it's just dead on. Moonlight Sonata, the name Moonlight Sonata actually came about a few years after Beethoven died. It was actually a, a music critic that dubbed it the Moonlight Sonata, and that name stuck over time. Beethoven himself actually named the piece the Quasi Una Fantasia which roughly translates into almost or like a fantasy. It's, it's interesting because it's part of this uh, the show's ongoing dream imagery and nightmare imagery. And this idea of this song, this very moody song being like a fantasy, but what was happening at the river's edge was very fucking real. You know, yes. it's it's like Thomas's nightmares happen when he's awake, not when he's dreaming, versus Shay's that happen when he's dreaming, not when he's awake. Elsa was playing it, but the people at the river's edge were the ones actually living this. So, you know. It was intense. I, I appreciated um, <laughs> that comic relief of Ennis when he's like, do you have anything happier to play? <laughs> uh, you got to do it. You got it. I don't have that accent. I can't do that. <laughs> Don't, don't you know any happy songs? <laughs> that was very lovely. I love that. But you know what? I also want to point out to listeners, the fact that she knows how to play piano, again, speaks to the idea that they were not rural farmers only. You know, that's not that I believe they, they are, there was more money to this family enough to play piano. She also sang beautifully. I was really surprised at Isabel May's voice. She is a beautiful singer. I hope that they get an opportunity to use that more.
Beautiful Dreamer, that's that song. If you Google it, you're going to come up with that as if Roy Orbison created it. It's actually a parlor song by Stephen Foster, published in 1864. The lyrics are very melancholy and very wistful. The song tells of a lover serenading a beautiful dreamer, quote-unquote, who is oblivious to worldly cares and may actually be dead. Foster's works feature many dead young women, including his sister Charlotte and, quote-unquote, Jeannie. Helen Leitner writes, the sentimental ballad is folk-like in character with its repetitious but lovely melody and its basic harmonic accompaniment. The quiet and calm of this mood is portrayed by the monotony of the arpeggiated accompaniment, by the repetitiveness of the melodic pattern and the strophic form itself. Of that, the interesting part to me was the was Elsa, who again, last time we, when we see her, the first thing we see of her is in that that dress, you know, taking an hour through the stomach, singing the song, Beautiful Dreamer, a song about a woman who may be dead. This is not a show that focuses a lot on music. And then in this one episode, we have Elsa performing two songs that evoke dreams and melancholy and moodiness and sadness and and maybe even death and death is in this episode death is surrounding this episode while she's playing the moonlight sonata the foreshadowing foreboding part of me it's gotta say i'm beaten uh it's beaten all sorts of warning drums about elsa and or someone that she may love I definitely think there's a real sense of foreboding moving forward here. Somewhere, someone referred to her being in her wedding dress, that that dress that she's wearing in that opening scene may be a wedding dress. Now, it's possible. Mm. It's definitely a mostly white dress, but I feel like we've seen her wear a lot of mostly white dresses because it's also got a lot of blue trimming in it and, and patterning in it, too. So her dress is has like a, um, there's like an undergarment portion. Then there's like a kind of like a petticoat-ish portion that's kind of more like a slip, which is what she wears when she's like going into the water and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's still a part of her dress because then she has the blue like overlayer. Maybe you'd have multiple overlayers, but you probably only have one white, you know, all the under portions of it all. I mean, I guess you can equate a white dress with a wedding dress, but I mean, in terms of this life, I to me, it seems like she had her alter the blue outer layer to become a top and, you know, she bought the pants in trade. So she, I think she would still have her white underlayer dress. So that's what I believe she's wearing in that scene. I mean, I haven't gone back to look at it, but I don't believe a wedding dress makes a whole lot of sense. No, I mean, it only makes sense insofar as it's X number of months alone away. Things have gone well with Ennis and the idea of get married while you're young and carefree. Uh, and, and there is some poetic irony that maybe the horrible things happen on her wedding. Margaret also has some white, um, dresses though that, you know, so it, it's possible that it could be hers and maybe, maybe it is being used for a wedding, but I, don't think any money or stops are being made for a wedding dress. This is a total non sequitur. And it's because I watch, whenever I watch TV now, I watch everything with subtitles. There was a very funny subtitle that popped up. And I'm only mentioning it because it made me laugh very hard. When they're driving the cattle through, remember, when by the time Ennis, Wade, and Elsa are driving the cattle through, Everyone, the wagons, the wagons that made it through are through. The people who have come across have come across. Uh, Margaret is bleeding and sitting, you know, in the campsite. And this one subtitle pops up and it's either Ennis or Wade say it because you don't really hear the line, but you see the subtitle pops up and it just says, hey, cow. (laughs) 
but in the aftermath, you have James riding through camp with Thomas and Shay and looking over at his wife and not saying anything at her. She's just staring off into the distance in a really shook kind of way, in a in a traumatic, in a traumatized kind of way. And then Elsa also stops and looks at her and also doesn't say anything to her. Are they giving her time to process and deal? Do they not know what to say to her? What was your take on why they don't approach her? I think it's the the complete recognition of the shock and the trauma of what's happened. Also around her, people are digging graves. That's just a lot to take in. I mean, when it was just Margaret and James and John that crossed the river, yes, it was chaotic. Yes, it was making her heart beat, but, uh, you know, it didn't prepare her in the least for what was about to happen. And I can't imagine how I would feel having to push someone else to their death in order to save myself. I think it would rip me apart. And so I understand that there's also um, a need to make sure that you keep the respect and the sort of not show any weakness is like the best way I can think of it. So she can sit there staring alone. But if someone goes over there and tries to put their arm around her or try to talk to her, like it does feel out of place and inappropriate. Like if you're going to have a conversation, it's going to be after all these people are done digging graves after we've made camp of some sort and you're laying quietly in the tent. Maybe that's the point you have a conversation about something, but it isn't right now. You know, I mean, I don't know if you've been in like a surgical waiting room um, or I don't know if you've gotten any kind of bad news at a hospital or anything like that. It's, it's a silent situation for the most part, um, especially when people are really trying to hold it together for other people. I think also the show has taught us and has done a good good job of teaching us that in particular, Margaret and James connect on the day and on the events of the day and, and talk about the news that each of them needs to know and catch each other up. They always do it at nighttime. I don't know that we've seen a meaningful conversation between these two while the sun is up. I think that's true of everybody. I think we've seen that with Shay and Thomas. I think we have we saw that with Joseph and Risa. I think we see that with Elsa and Ennis. I think there's so much work to be done and so much to just deal with in the daytime that only when everyone's still at night that you can have any moment of reflection. One little good production note that I just want to point out because we've talked about music a whole bunch already in this episode. And the aftermath, while when we see them digging the graves, we see Margaret shell-shocked looking off into the distance and and Elsa and James riding by and, and, and going about their business. The show's main theme, the show's uh, orchestral theme song is being played very slowly plucked out on a, on a solo piano and it has a very again just continuing that melancholy tone when you slow down that theme even more yellowstone in 1883 have very dramatic sweeping epic themes um when you slow them down and you take it to just a piano and and hang it down like the bass register very foreboding very sad very mournful tone to it go listen to the aftermath scene after the moonlight sonata is finished after the cows are across listen listen back to it and pick up that theme song being played just the the last couple of chords of it very dramatic really really hits home and you may not even realize it you may not even realize because 
because that's the power of music in a show or a movie is it cues you to certain emotions and you may not even be aware of why you're being cued that way. It's the song. It's also a very stripped down version of what we've been listening to the whole time. And I think that that really parallels our characters and that we're getting a more stripped down version of them. Like they don't like this is Margaret who's been worrying about being ladylike, being worried about who's saying ma'am to her and all this stuff. And now she is trying to retain just a little humanity in this moment. She she doesn't have the luxury anymore to think about, you know, how she's presenting herself as a lady. Like that's, it's all so forgotten. I want to talk to for just a second about the luxury of communication and how much we really can't understand how, you know, we ha- we all have our phones, we have ways to privately talk, you know, through text message or something, even when we're in the same room with other people. There's something about this time and the way that they're living, that communication is such a luxury, you have to really like physically go to people, it's kind of like this production to go to the person and have a conversation. You kind of see that with Shay, it's almost like he has to like, get his energy up to go like, seek out the person and communicate with them. You know, like, <laughs> There's just no casual communicating. So I think with that comes like a purposefulness and like a mindfulness that there's not a whole heck of a lot of just scattered conversation. It's like if we're going to be communicating, it's because these are like needs based communications, probably 90% of the time, not like us today, where probably 90% of the stuff that we share with one another is really extra. You know, it's it's not the the most dire of information, but we have that luxury to do that. And and these people, God, just conserving the energy, whoo, you know, much less like no privacy or anything else. <laughs> I want to just bookend and close the chapter on Elsa and the land and changing and becoming and our relationship with it. Again, another theme of the show, not just of, the, of this episode, is this anthropomorphizing of the land uh the the show treating the land and nature and, and as as a person uh, as as a person to deal with and to wrestle with and reckon with and maybe bargain with last week we had that great closing line where she talks about how the ground doesn't care if you bleed it drinks your blood it doesn't care if you're cut and god didn't make the land for you and that realization that this beautiful nature around us was not made for us in the similar vein elsa revisits the idea of the land and what she's willing to give up and bargain with because she loves it so in the end you can't bargain with it and the land is also never going to love you back let's listen to this closing clip from elsa and, and just uh just apply some lessons learned from the episode to it i had abandoned every memory of tennessee as though i was born on this journey but i wasn't we were leaving a place and seeking another and the journey was the necessary miserable road between the two Somehow I felt immune to the dangers of this place, as if the land and I had struck a deal. I could pass unharmed so long as I loved it. And I did. I loved everything about it. The cross in the Brazos taught me there was no deal. No matter how much we love it, the land 
will never love us back. You know, a couple episodes ago, Elsa predicted that she is on this great grand adventure and didn't realize that there was another parallel track of death and despair and destruction, but forebode were, you know, predicted that they were going to come crashing together and she didn't even realize it. I feel like she gets a little bit of a taste of that. What do you think of this idea of, of making the land almost like this thing that's that's living and breathing and 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 sentient in a way uh and and that you can't that won't love you back and doesn't care about you is 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 indifferent to you i think it's an amazing thing to point out because i i mean don't you feel that way about different plots of land where it just you get that familiar home kind of feeling or you just feel some sort of tie to this particular plot of land and the reality is like no man <laughs> that tree doesn't care about you <laughs> you know it, it's got other things going on and so i think it's an amazing thing to point out that you know a lot of what is driving james Dutton right now is this seeking of this plot of land that he is going to love and cultivate to be his family's ranch. I think what we're seeing, especially if you're watching Yellowstone, is there's more and more this sense of you can try to hold on to it, but it's like sand through your fingers, you know, like it's going to live on so well past you that it doesn't owe you anything and you can love it all you want and it doesn't owe you a thing. It will remember your name tomorrow when you're gone. No. And, and it, and you do not matter. And in fact, it will, like, as she pointed out, it will drink your blood. It will eat your bones. So there, there's nothing to that. It's so much bigger than we are. And yet we think we can own it. Uh, it's a human way to think, right? It's not, it's not sort of like bigger picture. Like, no, you can't own nature. Which also goes back to the conversation with James and Shay, where James feels like he's entitled to make this trip. Him and his family are entitled to make this trip, but that these immigrants aren't and she counters that he's not sure that anyone is in fact entitled to be making this trip across this land you know Shay has this very protective aspect of the land he he sees the future where the land is destroyed at the hands of man and he and he and he's mourning for it before it's even happened and when you think about it, his goal, he doesn't say, I can't wait to get there because I want to, you know, develop it and create this X, whole y, life Z, for myself. Right. He says, I just want to see it. I want to see he it before it's ruined. He just literally just wants to observe nature. He, he has this passive relationship with the land, not owning it, not actively changing it, just observing it. And I think that that's a huge difference than the majority of these people. These Germans got to learn to hold their own, Thomas. Or they won't survive the trip. None of us will. Yeah, they barely survive in the river. They camp five miles from town. There ain't no one to hire. Then we don't go. You stay. I'm going. I want to see it one last time. Before it's settled. Course ruined. After you see it, then what? Then I don't care. World can open up and eat me. I don't give a shit. He's the only one in the show who's not made. Well, Elsa too. Neither of them are making any kind of claims to the land. They just want. They just love the land for what it is, you know. And I feel like everyone else feels like. 
they're going to use the land in some way and and say that and say they love it but they want to they want to bend the land to their will yeah they want to conquer the land versus just experiencing it in the 1883 the road west special in the casting section at the start of the episode taylor sheridan is talking about how he knew he was telling a dutton origin story through james he knew he was telling a redemption story through shay and he says it was in the idea of elsa and then casting isabel may that he found the bridge between those two stories I remember thinking, we didn't talk about this, I think, when we did the episode last week, but it struck me that that is an interesting way to describe coming up with Elsa and and making her the essential, really the lead of this series, that she is the bridge between James's story and Shay's story. And I think it's maybe this land and this aspect of being a dreamer. And having her dream, her father's dreamer ambitions and having Shay's love for the land for the sake of the love of the land and nothing more. That bridge stands out to me a lot in this episode. It made sense to me hearing that line from Taylor talk about that. I see what you're saying. She's she is the middle ground between these two men and how they're looking at it. I really think that James, you know, I he is a hundred percent looking at the land like the clay for him to build his sculpture. And it's like, oh no. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's he's at the starting point where John Dutton, Kevin Costner, John Dutton is talking about in you know, 138 years later that he wants to preserve the legacy. You know, he's fighting to protect the legacy of everything that James is is heading there to start building, you know, very much the bookends of of that journey. We would be remiss if we did not talk about what I think will maybe turn into a very important scene. Thomas and Noemi. Thomas is keeping continuing to keep watch. You know, it's funny him and Shay were supposed to take uh, turns watching over Noemi's wagon and it seems like thomas is doing a hundred percent of the keeping watch duties (laughs) yes (laughs) uh let's listen to this little intertake between these two and then i want to talk to you because we talked a little bit about these two last week and now it seems like maybe we have to talk about it a little bit more man black man ain't gonna solve your problems man it's gonna create a whole bunch of new ones this is free country there's degrees of free man what does that mean? Government can tell me who to love? The government says you can't swim. Can't protect yourself. Damn right the government can tell you who to love. And how to love them. They shouldn't. But they can. Men have no idea what women want. <laughs> can't argue that. know why? Because they never ask. What do you want? I want to watch you eat. First of all, I give props to Thomas for for biting on that bait and and saying, "What do you want?" Yeah. <laughs> you know, like good on I you mean, she's for serving it room. up. I mean, yeah, right, right, right. Good job go, reading the though. room. Maybe you say reading the wagon or something. <laughs> I think you ride with Shay long enough, you learn how to have to, you have to read the room a little bit, you know? Uh, and you have to ask questions. You right. have to, you have to, right. Shay's not that talkative. I think you have to be the one asking the questions. I, I don't know. I don't know. Penelope's easy. Thomas. No. Thomas. No. 
You were against this. You you were no, you were not so on you were you were not so on board with their romantic pairing last week when we talked about it. I was just saying that it wouldn't be a bad thing to show, you know, a man and a woman being able to help each other and it not be romantic. That I'm just saying it would be a fresher take than it going instantly to romance. That's all I'm saying. Are they doing the right things they need to do in order to build this romance? Yes. However, I want to say I think that they're using them as a tool right now in a bigger way that I'm more interested in. I think they're doing a good job of actually building the world and building the expectations of the population of the world currently. So through what they can and can't do, what Thomas is comfortable or not comfortable doing, they are helping world build what society looks like right now, especially I think for maybe younger viewers who don't have a good sense of exactly what they're looking at. People who maybe are not very understanding of, of you know, that this is going to be an issue that Thomas is a black man and Noemi is not. So, you know, there's a lot going on here that I think that they're doing a good job of building this larger conversation about what you can and cannot do, what the government can and will let you do. If this goes romantic and these two individuals who are providing like the conduit for these conversations, okay. And I don't have any issue with that. And if they end up doing that, I could see them kind of trying to, I mean, sort of everything's a little off the grid in a lot of ways. If they can do that and get themselves into a place where they're not feeling like society Society is pounding down on them. Wonderful. But I think they're doing a great job of saying how that is going to be complicated and worth the audience having their ears perked up like this is a hard road if this relationship is going to happen. Noemi says boldly to Thomas, well, then let's go somewhere where the government can't tell us what to do, which I took to mean Portland. You know, it's funny because we have Shay talking about just wanting to see the land and then it can swallow him whole. Maybe Thomas has a different journey. Maybe Thomas doesn't get on a return train from Portland when all this is said and done. Maybe he does stay there. You know, it's interesting. I, I think they're setting it up for Thomas and Shay to very much have a parting of the ways one way or another when this is all said and done, which is interesting because you get the impression these two have not been away from each other. I mean, Thomas was even there or near when Shay was having to burn down his house to, you know, funeral pyre his wife and daughter. These two are not ever very far away from each other, you get the impression. Everything so far in the show feels like it's building to where there is going to be a parting of the ways, either in a permanent kind of way or at least in a until I'll see you again kind of way. So in a society kind of way, I was 100% taking her comment to mean like we could live like in a more rural life. Definitely not like in Portland, but like somewhere we could get far, far enough away from society rules that we could be like self-sustaining in a way that that we could still be together and have this little family be without any concerns of the judgment of the government or just generally like society. I don't know if that means like maybe he will take a trek further away, like we said, to kind of like settle land by himself, you know, away from cities and places that are already settled. I could kind of see that happening. They are forming a great companionship and a great, you explain some things to me and I'll explain some things to you dynamic. Um, you know, she's going to try to explain, you know, women a little bit to him. And I think all of that is, it's great. It, it provides a great 
plot of land here for us to have all these conversations. And I think that that's super smart to have done. And that's why I don't need to rush to them being in any kind of complicated relationship. I like the give and take the like, well, what do you do? Well, this is how I do it. Well, this is what I think. I like that. And it doesn't necessarily need to get messier at first for me. I know. I know. I, I think I agree. I think I agree with all that. I definitely agree with the character development and the story development. I feel like we are getting such good insight through Thomas's character to the larger world. I feel like he's the one who keeps reminding us that this is not taking place in a bubble. You know, it comes up from Shay when he's yelling at Joseph or, or, you know, all the immigrants that, you know, you ain't free yet. You know, behind you is society. Out there is no man's land. You're, you're not free yet. You're a pioneer. You're not anything yet. But it's Thomas who reminds us that this is Reconstruction era. Black men are not free. The, the line that struck me and the reason I, I wanted to pull that specific clip was when he says you know there are degrees to freedom that's a very powerful line don't skip over that think about that that is a powerful statement for a grown man who has lived a long time saying even at my age i understand that there are limits on freedom even though i am free there are limits on my freedom that's powerful that's powerful i think the women can can relate to that though in terms of like being a woman and i think that that's where an important portion of being able to have these conversations about like rights and freedom and everything can happen between these two people because the only people who can do whatever they want are white men nobody else can not women not not people of color everybody else has degrees of freedom after that so i think that there's a lot to this conversation that can continue to develop. And I hope it does. And I hope it brings up issues that audiences say, well, have we gotten better than that? Or do we still need a lot of work on that? Or have we have we made any progress at all? I think that there's really deep conversations that can be had between this group. But for right now, we're going to be moving on to our interview with LaMonica Garrett. So stay tuned. That's coming up right now. So I'm just going to start off fairly broad and ask you what drew you to the character of Thomas and the idea of this Western historical drama about the history of America. Uh, For one, just uh, getting to work with Taylor. Taylor's a great writer and everything he's doing right now is like it's turning to gold. So I wanted to be a part of that, that world. And the character he wrote in Thomas is just this, this strong, this strong black cowboy that, a lot of Westerns, well, most Westerns, you know, growing up, we didn't see. And Thomas's story arc, where it's going and where it ends up was traditionally held for, you know, characters in the genre that didn't look like me. So me being able to tell that story and, you know, representing like that's that means the world to me. And that's, you know, that's a big reason why I, I took it on. Next, we have Nick with Cinema Blend. What's going on, Monica? Thank you so much. Yep. Um, We heard Sam give you an ultimate uh, compliment regarding your physique and your athleticism. So I wondered if you could speak to that, uh, helping out in a role that is, I guess, as as physically taxing as some of these are. It's a, the whole cowboy culture period is a physically demanding, you know, it's tough. You're working outside all day. You're working with your hands all day. You're working on horses all day that might not want to do what you want them to do. Like, you know, it's, it's uh weather conditions are hard. Um, yeah. We're, like I, I get up every morning before, before work and I, I hit the weights 
I stretch out and Tim, Tim as well. Like I, you know, we have this com- competition going between me and him, this whole shoot who gets in the gym earlier. If you got a five o'clock call time, Tim's in there at three. Like I draw the line somewhere, but <laughs> like that just, it helps anchor me to prepare me for the, what, what the day brings. Cause you're sitting on a horse for four or five hours. You're the inside of your legs are done. Like your butt is done. Your, your hamstrings are done. You get out, you're walking all bowed out. Your legs are bowed out. And the, you know, I got off my horse the other day and the set medic came over to me and was like, Hey, you okay? You injured? I'm like, no, nah, man, I just been on this horse for four hours. I need to sit down somewhere. So yeah, being in shape, it really helps for this, for this kind of role. Next we have Michael from pop culture review. Hey, LaMonica. Thanks for coming out and talking to us today. How are you? Yeah. Thanks for having me. Uh, so 1883 starts with Thomas and Shay already having this established partnership uh, you you humanize Shay. You you bring some comedy and and some you know uh, breaks break the tension. But you also give him advice that maybe he doesn't want to hear or you know information he doesn't want to hear. Can you talk to us a little bit about that relationship and then also your Lamonica relationship with working with uh, Sam Thomas and Shay? They Thomas balances Shay out. They the right hand knows what the left is doing. They have a long history together. They served together in the Civil War. Uh, they became Pinkerton agents together and they just, they have that, that your, their close friends should be the ones to tell you the things that you might not want to hear. They just can't feed your ego or tell you you're always right. Thomas is that to Shay and Shay is that to Thomas as well. And Shay can be a little impulsive. He could be a little hot-headed. Thomas balances that out. And with that being said, Thomas, he has this, this kindness to him. And to me, he's the humanity and the soul of the show. Uh, but he has that hard line in the dirt of right and wrong. And if you cross his code of right and wrong or respect and disrespect, the wrath of Thomas is vicious and you'll see it come out throughout the, you know, the course of the, the course of the season. And Sam and I, as, as, you know, as people, I first met Sam maybe two weeks before we were about to shoot in cowboy camp. He saw me at the saloon in our little, you know, our little bubble in the ranch that we were living at. And he came over to me, like he grabbed me with, you know, both shoulders. And he was like, we're going to have a great time together. And, you know, gave me a hug. That's that cool. just any nerves I had of working with Sam Elliott, like just he got rid of all those. And we became brothers over this shoot. And we're going to be brothers when this is over. Like Sam is one of the best human beings I've ever met. And he's just he's just a kind soul. And everyone he comes across, he eases the tension of whatever is in the room. That chemistry really comes across. Thank you. Thank you. Next is Caroline from Pop Culture Review. Hey, LaMonica. I have loved so much learning about Pinkerton agents and how open they were to hiring women and people of color. What type of research did you do to prepare for this role as both a Pinkerton and also a war veteran? I did the same research. I found out that what the Pinkertons, their history was, and they were bringing in, you know, um, they were bringing in Black folks. They're bringing in women. I found out they were the original Secret Service. They served uh, under um, Abraham Lincoln, and he was the one that vouched for them to give them the recognition to become this big agency. And at one point in this country, they were bigger than the U.S. Army. Like the Pinkertons have a huge history in this country. And it's, you know, it's it's a, a lot more than what my research came to, you know, to bring me to. But that that did help me for what Thomas and Shay were about to encounter. And just the, the Civil War, like I knew a lot about the history of the Civil War, the Buffalo Soldiers and what it meant to, you know, black folks and their freedom back then of, 
you know, having guns and, you know, the sense of pride that the Buffalo soldier jacket represents. And that wasn't lost on me. And I, when the moment I put that jacket on, I knew how significant it was, but it really hit me. We were in Fort Worth in the, you know, shooting the scenes in Fort Worth. There's, you know, two or 300 background actors. And some of the background actors, the black guys came over to me and they were like, um, yeah, man, how does it feel, man? You know, to, to wear that Buffalo soldier's jacket. And at that moment, I knew it wasn't just significant for me. It was like, it's, there's a lot of people looking at this and seeing how I portray this character and what it means. And it, yeah, it, that helped set the tone for, you know, for how I'm going to bring him to life. Well, you're doing an amazing job. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next, we have Sterling with Taste of Country. Hello, Monica. Hey, how you doing? Doing really well. Thanks for being with us today. I appreciate it a lot. Um, as far as you, I want to pick up on Sam a little bit. You said that uh, he immediately put you at ease. What kind of perception or what kind of nerves did you have before meeting him? And also, what is your process of working together since you do have such a close relationship? I mean, Sam's an icon. So it's like you work with a Hollywood icon. It's it's you, you got to bring your game. You got to bring your A game every day. Seeing how he shows up every day, his work ethic. He's the first one there. He loves the process of filmmaking. You know, if they're if they're not shooting your scene, if their cameras are turning around, they say, hey, do you guys want to go back to base camp? We'll put you in a van. Sam has his Apple box and he sits in the middle of all the madness going on, no matter where we are. And he just sees everything he talks to everyone. He's just that kind of human being. And there was a great story with Sam. Um, no one saw this, but it was, it was me and Sam were sitting at the table in episode, I think it was episode two, where we were trying to recruit two cowboys. Mm-hmm. Now they had a lot of background actors in that, you know, in that scene. And there was a waitress that, that she was, she was supposed to come and pour us water in our, in our, in our cups, our glasses. And you could see her hand shaking because she was nervous. Like, this is Sam Elliott. He has that effect on people. And when they said action, she came and her hand was shaking and she kind of overspilled. And everyone was, you know, she was so distraught and she was just, oh, my God, I'm, you know, people are going to hate me. I just, I ruined everything. And she kind of went back to the back when they yelled cut. And Sam was like, hey, can someone come clean this up real quick? Yeah, they came and got it. Sam gets up. No one sees this. I'm looking at it. Sam gets up and walks over to her. And tells her something kind, I'm sure, whatever it was. And she had this big smile on her face. And the next take she came around, she had a steady hand. And it was just, whatever he told her, it calmed her nerves. And it just, that was the only hiccup she had the whole time. But he does that everywhere we go. There's always little, you know, things that I see that that Sam's doing like that. He did it with me because, you know, it's, it's, in, it's kind of intimidating working, you know, across Sam, but he, he brings everyone at ease. Next question from EL. Yes. So building off of that, you also mentioned that uh, there's a a bubble in the the ranch that you were working on. So can you tell us a little bit about the behind the scenes culture for 1883? What was it like uh, when you weren't on set? We were submerged in this cowboy world. Like even when we in cowboy camp, they had Taylor had us eating like beans, rice, cornbread, beef i've never had more red meat than i've had working on this show like living on a ranch but the stuff that we would eat on a trail is the stuff that they were preparing for us to eat here so it wasn't like we were getting burgers and you know fish and all it was it was it was it was red meat 
it was if you're a vegetarian on the set like i don't i don't know what you did like in texas period but it was uh he was preparing us for what life would be like on the trail and everything we did we're surrounded by cowboys we're surrounded by wranglers all throughout the day we're just you know we're doing horseback riding in the morning we're doing wagon you know training in the afternoon we're doing um precision shooting and you know with guns in the evening uh we're herding cattle like every minute was reserved for something cowboy behind the scenes and that brought us all close together by default next question from nick i wondered if you could talk about how badass it felt as a the cowboy posse to walk down the street with sam and tim and billy bob and uh and the rest like i would frame that and put it on my wall if i was yeah, we already threatened the photographer. Like, if we don't have that blown up in a life-size picture, we're all putting that in our office. I was just talking to Billy Bob last night, and he was like, man, wasn't that, a, a, like, just a cool moment? We knew it was a cool moment when it was happening, like that tombstone moment, that reservoir dogs, that slow motion kind of, you know. And when you're when you're young and you see these moments in movies, like you and your friends do that moment, like you're walking down, like we're headed to a gunfight. We're headed to give justice. And, you know, the four cowboys are walking down the street to the saloon like it's cliched, but it happened. And it was just with with Billy Bob, with Tim, with Mark, with Sam, like it was just it was it was badass. It was fun in the moment. And it was even more fun to watch it on, on screen. Uh, I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> And can we get last question from Michael? Ooh, with the pressure. Uh, you know, I, I think this is 1883 is telling a story that a lot of people don't think about. I think Thomas's character is playing a part in the story that we don't hear about very often. When people watch the show and walk away from it, it's 10 episodes. Uh, LaMonica, what do you want people to take away? What's the message or the idea or the story that you want people to remember most? Just different perspectives. Like we're seeing 1883, they're telling a lot of stories. Uh, they're giving voices to a lot of people that didn't necessarily have voices in this this show and this genre back, you know, coming across all these years of, of Westerns. There's uh, storylines from the immigrants' perspectives that are unique to them that we haven't heard about. And that's still going on to this day. There's lenses of black cowboys that you didn't see this, you know, the story, we're not recreating the wheel here. But you're just seeing that wheel from different points of views. And I think that, you know, seeing it from these lenses, I hope it changed people's perspectives of the time they went through and what's still going on. Great. Thank you so much. Yep. All right, guys, just want to thank again IDPR for setting up all of those roundtable interviews that you've been listening to the last four weeks. Uh, thank you so much for coordinating that, guys. And uh want to say thank you to LaMonica Garrett. He was fantastic. I've been a fan of his work through several of his more recent projects. I had started to see him and pay attention to him. He just speaks so wonderfully about his character and about his role in the show. Uh, listen to the interview. Obviously, you just listened to it, but go watch him talk on the the road west special if you guys haven't watched that yet he just gets it he like all of the cast members i think really has a good understanding of the important story that they're telling and in particular thomas's story for this place in time and being a black cowboy at this place in time his passion and energy is infectious in the interview and then just in general i think as a character every time he comes on screen like i'm curious of what thomas is doing and what he's going to say i'm very interested and that's not the case for every single character character on the show so there's something that la monica is doing exactly right to make us care so much about thomas 
and really not predictable because he has this soft heart aspect to him but he also has this aspect where he wants to go beat up james for being disrespectful <laughs> and you know he's, he's gonna keep you know beating you until you do what he says or you run out of face you know he's a complicated <laughs> multifaceted man uh right. thomas so i think every time he opens his mouth it's a little bit unpredictable what he's gonna say definitely has a code but i don't know that we have the handbook to decode the code exactly just yet not yet not yet i think Noemi's going to be the vehicle though to get it that's the thing i think through conversations with her we're going to get more and more about thomas uh, look, guys find find a woman out there that wants to watch you eat that's the lesson <laughs> of the episode <laughs> Before we leave, I want to talk a little bit about geography. The average Oregon Trail trip, if you were leaving from, say, Independence, Missouri, which was one of the traditional starting points for the Oregon Trail, all the way out to uh, Williamette uh, County in Portland, uh, in Oregon, uh, would take four to five months, barring any unforeseen tragedies or really setbacks. We are in April, or we were in April a couple of episodes ago, Last week, Shay mentions that if they took a detour, it would delay them to hitting the South Pass, which we described was in Wyoming, to late October, early November. So that's May, June, July, August, September, October, November. That's like six, seven months. Why the difference in time? I think it's because they're leaving from Fort Worth and not from Missouri or from Kansas. I think that starting further south aspect of it, and it sounds like they're going to be going up to Kansas and then joining the more traditional Oregon Trail, I think accounts for the extra two to three months on the journey. I know some people have been talking about the length of the journey and and why is there snow and, and where are we in time and all that kind of thing. I think that's the reason why. I think this journey to oregon is is planned to take between six to nine months because they started in fort worth versus a little bit further north now i wanted to ask you caroline about abilene we hear in this episode twice that it sounds like we're approaching abilene so we're still in texas abilene i know is in texas but other than that i don't know a goddamn thing about abilene (laughs) put this on a map where does abilene make sense if you're leaving from fort worth where is that is that near a border in texas and where do we think we go from there i put this give us a little bit of geography okay so if you are traveling from fort worth it's it's 150 miles or so from fort worth to abilene due west i think that this crew makes sense to start heading north at that point because you and i were both looking at a map and we believe they're heading towards kansas abilene is almost a straight shot to dodge city and it makes a lot of sense to me that that is where they're going to go and almost exactly north like i mean you cross through oklahoma i bet that's not on accident yeah yeah yeah. i mean it's yeah it's very very much north so abilene maybe to do like last stock up on provisions texas postcards and then maybe you start heading north <laughs> it's the 27th most populous city in the state of texas so that doesn't necessarily make it a huge place um but you know they they've they spoken about it oh i don't know <laughs> Maybe, I don't maybe know. not in 1883. I, I love Bucky's. I'm a fan. You do? I was just reading a whole thing about Bucky's and their owners. Um, they're much younger than you think. Well, that makes me sad. <laughs> well, the, it's only been open 20 years. So I think that Abilene's going to be interesting. I mean, Fort Worth, I have a real good handle on the culture and everything going on around those cities. Abilene, I don't have a lot of experience in West Texas exactly. Things are things are very far apart um, <laughs> in that area of Texas. Even like Lubbock has Texas Tech. And Amarillo is north of that, but it is it is far between 
different locations. And it's only little teeny tiny little places in between, even now in 2022. I have to think this is just going to be like long stretches of nothing. And Abilene, I'm sure, will be like a welcome oasis for this group. Although 150 miles, and we've already talked about how a wagon only really goes about 8 to 20. We were joking. They only make it about five miles. It seems like it's going to be a long time before we get to Abilene because we know we just crossed the Brazos. So we're, we're still quite a bit far away here. It's going to be quite a trek. I think we've got to do some fast forwarding, right? With this There's group. There's got to be some jump. I mean, we're going <laughs> to next. It's going to be a time jump. Next week is episode five. And even though it's ridiculous to think about it, that's the midway point of the season. At the end of episode five next week, we will be at the halfway point for the season. I suspect episode five maybe takes us to Abilene and then we come back for episode six. My guess is there's going to be a time jump because then you're going to be on the back end. You know, they're going to start setting the table for the finale. And, you know, we've you've kind of coasted to the top. Episode five comes and goes. And now you're going to be on the decline to the finale. That I mean, that's traditional TV storytelling. So who knows? Are you surprised we haven't seen more Billy Bob? I thought we were going to get, you know, seven, eight episodes of Marshall Billy Bob, and we've only had the one. Well, I'm not sure. What The little factoid that I was going to share with you is that Abilene actually incorporated in 1883 and became like its own little city then. So I'm kind of curious if that might bring some of those types of guys over there, mm. you know, as this sort of being like this newly incorporated area that that might be a reason why we'd have Billy Bob come back over. And that's like when they have their first mayor there, everything's all happening in 1883. So there's there's stuff, right? I think that there's something kind of interesting to that. We can all do a little research on Abilene between now and the next episode, but there's something to that that might just bring some of these other big guys from, say, Fort Worth over there. That makes sense to me. Just, I mean, just looking at a map, it, it feels like... Like Fort Worth is maybe the biggest city at that time nearest to Abilene. Oh, yeah. And again, if you're looking at a map, there is very little. <laughs> Can you see all the blank? And this is 2022. There's a little blank space in very teeny tiny little towns. I mean, I, I mean, you got to go down a little bit more I-20 to get to Odessa, where the Panthers from the book version of Friday Night Lights and the movie uh, took place. Uh, but other than that, yeah, not a whole hell of a lot. Well, of and <laughs> can I just point out to you how big Odessa looks? And you know very well from Friday Night Lights that that is a small town. Yeah. Look at how big Odessa looks. It, it doesn't. It doesn't look tiny. There's so many other tiny, tiny towns all around that. Clear eyes, it, full hearts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm. Ex I'm excited to to continue on here and see. You know how these Texas towns are sort of forming. Uh, Sweetwater is also not that far away from Abilene. That's another area that I feel like would not be crazy if we heard something about. I'm curious. Although I, I just feel like we've got to head up straight north I, I feel that way well we got to get at least to oklahoma because that's going to introduce the native americans i think i i, I think it's going to be crossing into the oklahoma territories where we're going to see start to see the interaction with the native americans which i think feels like is a part of the story it's kind of like you know we were talking about why what was the benefit for james to travel with a large group i mean his family seems capable enough i think interactions with the native americans and being human fodder and providing them some cover circling wagons you know, sooner state right I, I think that is part of that is that feeling that it's inevitable it feels like it's coming down the tracks we just can't see it yet one thing about the billy bob thing just to draw upon remember there were disgruntled germans that shea predicted were going to go get drunk and maybe bring men back with them 
and maybe even chase the wagon train from Fort Worth. So I'm curious if that comes back around because we haven't heard any more about what happened to those guys after Shay, you know, said, don't make a liar out of me for not killing you here. Mm. So maybe that's the way it comes back in. But well, and from Abilene, you're asking me like how far to like basically like the state line. I mean, it would be roughly another 130, 140 miles roughly to just like a little kind of dip in the Oklahoma, Texas border. Although I have to say with their real interest in Texas, it maybe doesn't surprise me if we stay a little bit tighter to the Texas Oklahoma border, like sort of heading towards the panhandle. It wouldn't be crazy. It's it's like Dodge City is strangely like kind of almost like right with that line of the border, like if you're looking at it um, vertically. And so it wouldn't be crazy to me if we kind of dip back and forth in some way between the two states. Interesting. Well, guys, it's going to be quite the ride. I hope you guys stick with us as we go along it. Hitch up your horses and come along. <laughs> this is Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the Yellowstone Podcast 1883 episodes. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe. And while you're there, but particularly at Apple Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts, if you could leave us a five-star rating, it would greatly help us in promotion of the show. It helps in our rankings. It helps in uh, giving visibility to those podcast players. And you know what? Listen, you're not a musician. You're not a carpenter and you're not a fucking blacksmith. You're a listener who can leave us a five-star rating. That's what we're asking you to do. You have the journey and that's it. <laughs> Thanks for going on the journey with us. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.